from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. He was searching his whole life to see if he could find some answer that he could understand that would help to explain why something like this would have occurred. Um, did did he I, never I, find that answer then, one that was satisfactory to him? No, I don't think he ever did. Hmm. I don't think he ever did. And, and this is a man who was as well read and studied and versed in everything from literature to science and history as anybody, you know, who's ever read a book. I'm Sarah Fenske. Gustav Schoenfeld titled his memoir, Absence of Closure. It tells the story of his boyhood on the border of Czechoslovakia and Hungary in the 1930s and 40s, and his deportation to Auschwitz. As a boy, Gustav survived both Auschwitz and Dachau, and then a third camp, before being liberated and emigrating to the U.S. He settled in East St. Louis. He became a physician and the head of the Department of Medicine at the Washington University School of Medicine. A few years ago, Gustav's son turned that memoir into a rock opera. It's called Iron and Coal, and it grapples with Jeremy Schoenfeld's memories of his father and his attempts to create a life out of the ashes of the Holocaust. Jeremy Schoenfeld describes it as Bernstein's mass meets Pink Floyd's The Wall. Was I too afraid that you wouldn't understand that you wouldn't take my hand and that you never knew me all along cause my dues have all been And that is the Kaddish from the opening scene of Iron and Coal. The rock opera streams this Thursday night via Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. And joining us today to tell us all about it is composer Jeremy Schoenfeld. Jeremy, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Jeremy, you've said that as a child you lived in the shadows of the Holocaust. What did it feel like growing up within those shadows? Well, that's an interesting question. I... um you know, we were a Jewish family in St. Louis, but even amongst other Jewish families, we felt kind of like we had a unique place as, um, you know, for me as being a survivor's child and also being a lot younger than a lot of other um, survivors' uh, children because my father was so young when he was in the camps. So um, I was, I think I was very aware that um, while I, you know, while I fit in, I was a St. Louis kid, I loved the Cardinals, I played baseball and um, did all my music stuff. Um, I was also very keenly aware that it was a unique uh, situation. We had a very unique family with a lot of 
very strong Eastern European accents. <laughs> so your father was 10 uh, when he was first yep. uh, sent to the, the camps. Growing up, was he open to talking about those horrible experiences with you? He was, um, more so than my, my grandfather uh, and my grandmother, uh, who had also survived, his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the conversations that we had I obviously, you know, gearing to the age of the child. Um, so there were certain things that I got in bits and pieces as I got older. But there are a lot of things, you know, I, th- I think it's part of the, again, being the child of a survivor. Um, there are things that you would catch and then maybe forget or forget details or forget the timeline. And it really wasn't until, you know, um, much later that I was I was able to really piece together the story from, uh, you know, from front to back and in a much more uh, specific way. I imagine his memoir played a big role in that. What sparked him to, to write a memoir? Well, I think my father, his whole life, you know, uh, he was searching. Uh, I, I won't say that he was tortured. My father, one of the quotes, and we use uh, actually his voice in the quote that I recorded, um, of where he said that, you know, apart from one bad year, he's had a wonderful life. Wow. Uh, and um, so I think that he really lived that. I don't think that was just, um, you know, positive kind of affirmation. I, I, but I think that he was, um, he, that being said, he was searching his whole life to see if he could find some answer that he could understand that would help to explain why something like this would have occurred, um, which is, of course, why he named the memoir Absence of Closure. Um, did did he I, never I, find that answer then, one that was satisfactory to him? No, I don't think he ever did. Hmm. I don't think he ever did. And, and this is a man who was as well read and studied and versed in everything from literature to science and history as anybody, you know, who's ever read a book. Um, so I think, um, I think there was, uh, but I, I think so. There were it was twofold. The, the reason for creating was, um, first of all, to put it down to have that document for his family. Um, really, you know, he, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about trying to reach out to. Uh, um, you know, to the, the to the world so much as to make sure that his story was there for his family and for those people who might be interested in in, in hearing about it. And I think for him also, there was a, a cathartic experience trying to write these things down, finding out, you know, where he was actually more emotionally uh, impacted as he was creating this thing. And I think mm-hmm. that was that was something, you know, from a clinical scientific type of mind. Um, I think finding uh, finding out how emotional these things still were, I think, was something that uh, he might have been prepared for, but maybe not as prepared for as he uh, had first thought. Hmm. And what about for you? Were there things you learned about your father for the first time after reading this memoir? That's an interesting question. I found that, well, first of all, I think that, um, as we were talking about the emotional impact, I think think that um, I, I found out just how much he had really um, tried to understand and wrap his head around this and how it was a lifelong um, pursuit. Mm. Um, I don't think I had quite really given that kind of credit to the, um, you know, to his emotional journey on that, uh, in that, in that way. So, um, you know, the facts uh, I knew, the stories I knew, um, but, uh, but really it was more about the way that they had sort of transformed him psychologically. And that was, mm. that for me, that's sort of an emotional, uh, attacking point for, for, for what I do musically. Um, and 
So I, when I, you know, after after many uh, thoughts and attempts at trying to figure out what I, how I wanted to say what I wanted to say, that ended up being my entry point, the psychological. Hmm. Well, let's, that's actually a great uh, reminder. Let's play another excerpt from Iron and Coal. This song is called Epilogue, Story of Love. I never missed a chance to explore All the beauty and joy life's provided me It doesn't mean the past been ignored It's just that chapter is placed now Where it ought to be And someday when you read this book You'll understand the journey I took And may the shadows that followed me Disappear And may the closer you look Remind you to cherish those so dear Fight through the struggle That is the song Epilogue, Story of Love. It's from the rock opera Iron and Coal. My guest today is the composer Jeremy Schoenfeld, and this rock opera is something that Southern Illinois University Edwardsville is streaming on Thursday. We have a link on our website where you can join in for that experience. Jeremy, this song is is so touching. It it sounds like that's uh, you're singing in your father's voice as, as he's talking to you. Is that right? That is correct. Thank you. Yeah, it was... Um was actually the last song that I wrote for the album itself, uh, for the original concept album. And um, I wrote that song, um, a lot of it where the album was recorded in Vienna. Uh, I just, I think I had a certain perspective once I had gotten through much of the journey and much of the album. And I felt that there was one piece that was missing, which was, the, uh, you know, the first piece that you played a, an excerpt from at the beginning, the Mourner's Kaddish, is really a son talking to his father through time. And I felt that the bookend uh, epilogue story of love was um, in its own way a reply of a father wherever he is speaking to his son. Mm. And, um, and it's really, of course, imagined through the son that his father's, you know, this is what his father might say. So... Um, so yeah. sort of the imagined uh, thing that your father might leave you with, is this something where he knew you were working on this? Uh, did he ever get to a point of, of getting to hear this song? Yeah. he. Uh, well, the tragic part of this uh, for me was that uh, when I recorded the album, which was actually the, the original album was recorded in 2011 in Vienna, uh, my father passed away the day the album itself was mastered. The so, very day. The very day, May 21st of 2011. He, um, so dad knew what I was doing and we had, uh, we had discussed, uh, you know, uh, as we did when he was writing his memoirs and he would send pages to me and, and to my siblings, uh, Josh and Julia, to, to look at and discuss. Um, he, knew, he knew that I was attempting to create something and um, that I was attempting to create this sort of uh, as I as I told him, this parallel journey of a father who survives the war, dealing with sort of the emotional roller coaster of uh, you know of surviving, 
and then you have a, until the birth of his son, I should say, and then you have a son who grows up underneath the shadows of Auschwitz, um, who is now trying to come out under, uh, from underneath that shadow once his father has passed away. Mm. So, um, and I play the song, the actual Kaddish, where the son is really speaking to his father who has passed away. Um, pl I played that for my father. So, um, you know, he knew, I knew that things were, he was, he was getting sicker and, um, but I just, I, you know, I didn't anticipate that he would actually, have, you know, not get to hear the finished product. Um, and what was that like getting to play that, that Kaddish room? I understand the Kaddish, this is a, a mourning uh, ritual within the Jewish community. And here you were playing correct. it when he was still alive. Yeah, for very much, very much my alive father. It was a very surreal, um, difficult. I was actually as nervous just playing that for my father as I would have been performing in front of a couple thousand people as we mm -hmm. did at the Strathmore when we did the first premiere. Um, it was very, uh, it was very strange. And, um, but I, you know, but I knew it needed to happen. I knew I, he needed to know. Um, I, I almost, I almost felt like I wanted some, some blessing from him that whether he got to hear the completed uh, album and show or not, that he understood and was, um, you know, was supportive of the work that I was trying to create. And did he give you that blessing? I, he did. Yeah, he did. Was it a, a moving experience for him to hear this, or was this something that, that was difficult in some ways? You know, that's a that's 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 tough. Uh, I think it was, I think it was a moving experience. Um, I don't, you know, he didn't outwardly, you mm -hmm. know, become incredibly emotional, but, um, and I, th I, I think it, it was more of a. Just there was a sort of a deep understanding between the two of us, that I, I, a mutual respect, which mm. I think any you know son and father, I, I felt like that at that moment I had his, um, you know, his respect for what I was attempting to do, which, you know, this isn't always the kind of subject matter that people think is ripe for musicalization. Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> you know, so I think that he respected that. For me, the diving into the deep end of the pool was really kind of where my um you know where my passion is when it comes to creating stories and and uh and um, you know emotionally compelling pieces hmm. so this began um with a concept album and you released it that way but it has had such an amazing afterlife after this original hmm. conception how did you go from this is an album to this is a rock opera and there's actually also a, a visual element this becomes a performance yeah uh, well, it was been it's been a journey. That's that's for sure. Um, it has a you know. So first, when I finished the album, uh, the it was it was it was obviously very difficult because the idea of trying to shill and mourn simultaneously is is a very difficult thing. That's and some I tough timing. <laughs> it was very tough timing, and I, and of course, I had also created this overseas, so. You know, while we had a you know a lot of buzz over there, and we had worked with you know many many people, many musicians and publicists, and all the stuff that we had over there, it was virtually unknown the project that I was doing here in the states. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the first, you know, at first I I had you know I, the, I well so to answer your question about the actual creation, I knew that what I had created. Um, needed to be performed for me at least as a concept album from like a, a front to back experience. So mm -hmm. when I when I was as, as I was creating it, once I had created it, I, I began to think of ways in which I could express that. Um, and one of the first things that occurred to me was that um, 
my friend and fellow St. Louis and Tom Seltzer, uh, who created the original artwork for the album, had, uh, uh, I just thought it was such an evocative, emotional thing that I, I, I asked, I said, do you think you could create some animation based on your works? And he took a stab at it. And, and I got together with another uh, friend, a, a multimedia specialist named Paul Verschbau in uh, Manhattan. And we started basically taking things like I, I took all of the Super 8 films that had been sitting in canisters in a, you know, in the attic in our house and, and, and a ton of old photographs. And I put all that into some digital forms so that we could cut it up and put it into these songs and, and with the animation. And, and I had a friend, Natalie Lamont, who, uh, who choreographed some amazing uh, modern and Broadway dancers. And we filmed that. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, so I sort of basically I, I took the songs and I started making almost like m- music videos for them, uh, really just sort of led by emotion. And um, and we were commissioned at first to do this at a synagogue uh, in uh, in Brooklyn uh, as a performance. And when that fell through, you know, I was at least I had this work mm-hmm. and I had all this stuff. So. You know, a, a cut to a couple of years later, a friend of ours, a, a friend, a director who had been following this the entire time, Kevin Newberry, who ended up directing the piece, um, said, "You know what? I'm gonna. I want to. Let's let's jump into this and make it happen." And we um, we ended up performing it uh, in Manhattan, at, uh, or I'm sorry, in Brooklyn at uh, National Sawdust, um, which is a wonderful uh, smaller venue. And that's when Beth Morrison, uh, producer, stepped in to take a look and. Um, and my friend Joy Brown, who uh, brought us to the Strathmore, also was in attendance. And, um, you know, so we so we kind of picked it up piece by piece. And from there led to the workshop uh, where we put the pieces together. We put my, uh, you know, I had wanted to put my father's memoirs in there. So we sat there with the book, you know, earmarked many, many pages of different ideas of quotes. And we stuck them all on a wall. And and then as we kind of went through the songs, we figured out what, what the flow was, what pieces needed to be there, what things we wanted to create. Mm-hmm. And and the actual multimedia production that, um, that you see uh, is basically, it's the result of that workshop. It's, you know, I had, I wrote, I should say that, you know, the difference between a concept album and the production is that there are songs that are from the original album that are not in the show, mm-hmm. but uh, and also vice versa. There are songs that I created specifically for the stage piece that are not on the the concept album. So, the but the but the actual the viewing that uh, people will have um, is the first, uh, literally the world premiere performance of the, all of those efforts. So that's the actual first performance, words okay. and all. <laughs> and and in our final minutes here, I want to bring it back to this music because it's it's just so moving. Let's play a bit of another song from Iron and Coal, and this is called Stop. There's something along inside my head. There's something no matter wouldn't you rather be happier instead of always running around and around and Six million down, one more. Six million down, one more. I, I set the whole damn thing on fire. I, I set the whole damn thing go round and round and round and round and round. I go, I, I set the whole damn thing on fire. 
And that is Stop from Iron and Coal, the rock opera from composer Jeremy Schoenfeld. Jeremy, this whole project is an attempt to come to terms with almost the unthinkable, um, this this terrible story that your father managed to survive and, and find this life after. In the process of writing this, were you able to come to terms with this in a way you hadn't before? Yeah, it was really... Um uh, good question. It was really, it was a very cathartic experience for me as well. Um, the idea that um, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I had a, I had a, a great relationship with my father and, and, you know, I don't think we left anything on the table mm-hmm. when he did pass away. But for me to be able to have this sort of conversation through time, uh, that was, you know, again, an invented conversation. Um, but it was, it was, um, it was important for me to feel like I could you know, emotionally sort of connect and emotionally say these things. Um, the, the doubts, you know, the the, 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 the sort of time-honored, did I ever make you proud? Um, those kinds of questions, many questions and many things emotionally that I was able to, um, uh, to put down in music. But then um, the actual performance that we, um, that we created at the Strathmore, um, where we had some 230 people, you know, with uh, with choruses and orchestras and this huge multimedia in this incredibly gorgeous uh, 2,000 seat, uh, you know, uh, auditorium in Bethesda, Maryland, it was, you know, it was unbelievably gratifying just to be able to sit there and look around and think that, uh, you know, that something that I sat at the piano and toiled over could end up being something so, um, you know, so huge and impactful. Well, uh, composer Jeremy Schoenfeld, we want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing about this work. Thank you very much for having me. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. There is nothing in the world you can achieve. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.